The rest of us today are going to start with a riddle. So, if you've heard it before, don't shout out the answer. No one wants to be that guy or that gal. But here's the riddle. Adam God made out of dust, but thought it best to make me first. So I was made before man to answer, to answer God's most holy plan. A living being I became, and Adam gave me my name. I from his presence then withdrew, and more of Adam never knew. I did my maker's law obey, nor ever went from it astray. Thousands of miles I go in fear, but seldom on earth appear. For purpose wise, which God did see, he put a living soul in me. A soul from me God did claim, and took from me the soul again. So when from me the soul had fled, I was the same as when first made. I am without hands or feet, or soul. I travel on from pole to pole. I labor hard by day, by night, to fallen man give great light. Thousands of people, young and old, will by my death great light behold. No right or wrong can I conceive. The scripture I cannot believe. Although my name therein is found, they are to me an empty sound. No fear of death doth trouble me. Real happiness I'll never see. To heaven I shall never go, or to hell below. Now, when these lines you slowly read, go search your Bible with all speed. For that my name is written there, I do honestly to you declare. If my kind you can't identify, you for ministry will qualify. Who am I? A huge hint is, today we're going to start a study in the book of Jonah. It's a whale. Open your Bibles to Jonah, if you would. Now you want me to read it again so you can see it, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the Bible does not teach that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, by the way. It just says a big fish, um, but that would mess up the riddle, so... Um, I used it anyway. <laughs> so the riddle may not be true altogether, but the Bible is. Now, some of you are thinking, now, where, where's Jonah? Okay, so go to Matthew, if you can find Matthew in the New Testament, and it's a, eh, roughly a handful of books or so to the left, little books. So it's toward the end of the Old Testament, little book, four chapters, I think. I don't think our study of Jonah will last too long. Um, we'll do the first three verses today. We'll read them in just a moment, but we won't go at that kind of snail's pace. We'll get things moving right along. 
Lord willing, I think what we're going to do is do Jonah over the course of several weeks or a few weeks, we'll see, and then do at least a sampling looking at some of the judges, um, not all of them, lest we all be severely depressed um, and tired of hearing the same sermon every week, um, which is kind of the point of judges, but we'll look at judges um, and then um, we'll look at the gospel according to John. So that's kind of, I think, where things are headed, um, just so you're aware. Why Jonah? You guys found it yet? I have a few reasons why Jonah. One would be because it's a super simple book, and it's super complicated. And I've always been intimidated by it. So no time like the present to step up to the plate and say, stop being intimidated by it. Um, go for it. So we're going to look at it in its simplicity. We'll look at it a little bit in its complexity. That's one of the reasons. Another reason why I want to do Jonah would be, would be because it's for our, our spiritual profit, um, for our spiritual benefit. Uh, if all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for us, ultimately. Uh, and Paul is talking about the Old Testament, first and foremost there. It's for our benefit, for our profit. It's kind of interesting. Paul's writing to Christians and he's describing all the Bible, first and foremost at that point in time, the Old Testament would be for their benefit. And so we would want to learn what, can we, what, we, what we can learn as Christians from, from the book of Jonah. Another reason would be because it's so often misunderstood. Um, it doesn't need to be misunderstood. So that's another motivator for it. Um, another motivator, finally, another reason for studying Jonah would be because it does a great job of showing us... Um, something great about who God is. And it does something great regarding showing us something about who Jonah is and, and, and the people he represents. So we learn something about ourselves. Um, and it shows us something great about who Christ is and what Christ would come to do. And so uh, Jesus references Jonah. Jesus is descri uh, describes himself uh, in a similar way uh, to the book of Jonah. Uh, and so we we'll, we'll want to make sure that we learn something about Jesus from Jonah and appreciating Jesus from Jonah. We'll do that even today, uh, a little bit at least. Um, so let's go ahead and look at the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. That's as far as we'll get today. We haven't gotten involved with the fish yet, right? I asked some of my younger kids, so what's, what's the book of Jonah about? The first thing you hear is, is the fish, right? Um, and the fish is important. Um, but the fish actually tells us something important about God uh, and about Jonah. And so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the fish, kids, um, but not so much today. So I have a handful of questions that will guide our 
our prep today. So we're going to look at five questions about Jonah that are going to help us, that are going to motivate us, that will put things straight for us, that will help us to see Christ, help us to see ourselves, help us to see God, help us to not misunderstand the book, hopefully. So five introductory questions. First question is the obvious one. Who is Jonah and what is his problem? Okay? Who is Jonah and what is his problem? First of all, let's make sure we see Jonah was a historic person. That, that probably is pretty shocking for some people to see. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah was a real person. Jonah was a historical figure. Jonah had parents. Jonah lived in Israel, a real place. In fact, it's interesting to see the connection. If you would like to turn to 2 Kings, you can. You don't need to. I'm going to read 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, and tie in another text that helps us to see that Jonah is a person who lived in the 8th century. We actually know more about Jonah from another book. He lived during the 8th century. He lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II. And King Jeroboam II reigned or lived from... 786 to 746 B.C. So if I said 8th century, I didn't... I mean B.C. Um, Okay. Historical person. Real person. Not mythological figure. 2 Kings 14.25. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah. Listen to this. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant... Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Glad I'm not from Gath-Hefer. He's a prophet of God, real person, 8th century B.C., described as a prophet, this messenger of God, the servant of God. He's an Israelite, We know he's an Israelite from that passage. We also know from Jonah chapter 1 because we keep hearing about the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, using the word, the Hebrew word Yahweh, the great God, the great self-existent God, the great God of Israel, the great covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. That's who the Lord is in Jonah. And so if we are not thinking about that, we, we, we might not quickly go, oh, he was an Israelite. He belonged to the nation of Israel. Yahweh was his God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That's who Jonah is. And, and we're already on our way toward understanding the book. We're already on our way to understanding what Jonah's problem was. What's this guy's problem anyway? In part, we're starting to see his problem is We're not there yet. He's an Israelite. And what God tells him to do rubs his Israelite skin the wrong way. It's a problem. It's a problem for him. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and some of you are, or newer, Israel is God's chosen nation. Okay? God chose a weak, ungodly people to make his own. 
We're not looking up the passages, but we could. And that's so God can show His power. He didn't, look at, he didn't go looking for the biggest, best, most amazing, most faithful. No, He went for the sinners. He went for the weak and unlikely so that He could show His power and show His uniqueness. And He made great promises to them. Okay? Uh, he made great promises to them and He covenanted with them. Okay? Covenant, we're going to look up the passages in, a, in just a moment, at least in Genesis 12. But a covenant is a, is a formal agreement. Okay? Uh, in Malachi, marriage is described as a covenant. Okay? I don't have a casual relationship with Molly. I have a formal relationship with Molly. It's more than that, trust me. Okay? But it is a formal relationship, right? It's a marriage covenant. So since that word is used so often, you should know that when you read your Bible. God has a formal relationship with Israel. He's made promises to those people that He's going to keep. He's also called those people to make sure that they do certain things. We kind of know how that goes, okay? But when we know that Yahweh is Jonah's God, we know he's an Israelite. And so he is part of that covenant nation, that covenant people. Now, Israel's different. We're not Israel. Israel's different in the Old Testament because we not only have believers, because there are believers, but it's also a nation, Okay? In Christianity, we have all nations. Okay? We don't have one nation that is the Christian nation. It's tied to people who are from all nations. But unique in the Old Testament would be the fact that God not only has His people who He saves, He has a national identity. And if you don't understand in the Old Testament, it gets pretty confusing. Jonah belongs to that nation of God that we, we would call it a holy nation because the Bible calls it a holy nation, a distinct nation. And, he, and, and they have wars and they have fights and sometimes they're supposed to get along with other people. Sometimes they're actually supposed to conquer other people. It's a different kind of world than the one we live in. But that doesn't mean we can't learn from it. We're supposed to learn from it and appreciate something about who God is and always is, regardless of Old or New Testament. Something about the human heart and how it always is, Old or New Testament. So just keep some of those things in mind if you would. What is Jonah's problem? Go back to verse 3 with me if you would. But Jonah rose to flee to Nineveh as the Lord commanded. No. But Jonah rose. That's what you'd expect. He's a prophet. That's what he's supposed to do. God told him to do something. And he's part of God's nation, the nation of Israel. But Jonah rose. He didn't flee to Nineveh. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. What's his problem? His problem is he's going to disobey God. His God. This is crazy. This, this is nonsense. This is stupid. This is showing something about how crazy his heart is. How, how messed up his heart is. How sinful his heart is. So, his problem is he's not going to obey God. And let's put it another way. Jonah's problem is Nineveh. That's what his problem is. So it's on two levels. God is his problem because he's not going to obey God, which is really stupid. But the reason he's not going to, his problem is with Nineveh. Especially because he's an Israelite. Nineveh is a great city. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. That's the problem. That great city, that makes it even worse. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
Nineveh is that great Assyrian city. Opponents of Israel. Okay? They were, and they will become again, at this point in time in history, they have been and they will be again, a superpower. Okay? Is what we would call it today. A military superpower. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about Nineveh. Listen to what one scholar says. This city was one of the greatest in the ancient world. I could have said that. (laughs) Located about 600 miles northeast of Israel, it endured for over a thousand years. Quite a history. Nineveh was huge by ancient standards. The city was located in what is now northern Iraq, near present-day Mosul. It's an Assyrian city. It's a great, powerful Assyrian city. And they've been our enemies. And you know what? Jonah's knee-jerk reaction is right. They're going to be their enemies again. So it's right in that level. As a little bit of an aside, if you were to go to the British Museum today, um, and if you have the resources to sometime go to the British Museum, uh, you should go to the British Museum. I like to tell people, if you want to go see the world, go to the British Museum. Because as they ruled the world in so many ways, in so many senses, they stole all their stuff. Okay? I mean, the joke is, there's more of the Parthenon in the UK than in the real place. When you go to Israel and they'll say, oh yes, this... um, that the real, the, this is a replica of this, the actual bust of so-and-so, you know, and the, and the head and all this, is they'll either say it's either in their museum in Israel or it's in the British Museum. So if you go to the British Museum today, you'll see all this stuff from ancient Nineveh. There's all kinds of stuff. Jonah's a real person. His problem is the Assyrians, the Ninevites. When I was at the British Museum, I would love to go back someday. But when I was there, there were protesters outside. Protesters from what used to be called Nineveh. In essence, saying, give us our stuff back. Okay? Now we're way off target, but it helps us to kind of understand what's going on here, what the, what the problem is, I think. I, mean, I, I suppose this doesn't really work, but you, I mean, you could think in terms of maybe um, conflicts that countries have. You know, if you can think of the country you dislike the most or, or whatever it might be, family members killed there, I mean, they could get some serious issues and maybe try to get to the emotions of it. It's not, not exactly the same. You go, I don't want to do anything to help those people. I hate those people. Jonah's problem is, what if he goes there and tells them they're under God's judgment? Now we're looking ahead in the book a little bit. And they repent. When in his heart, He doesn't think they deserve to even hear about God's judgment lest they might repent. I mean, we might say casually, he wants those people to go to hell. 
probably good to stop and say, okay, let's get in touch with our feelings. <laughs> imagine the emotion that Jonah would have. We can only imagine. Okay, let's go to number two. Next question. I'm having fun. Why, why was I intimidated by this book? I don't know. Number two. What is significant about Joppa? What is significant about Joppa? Well, theologically, what's significant is it's on the way away from Israel. But let's go ahead and see in verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. That would be westward instead of eastward. From the presence of the Lord... He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Well, there's at least a starting point. You go to Joppa on the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, You're going to leave Jerusalem, you're going to leave Israel, and you're going to go to the Mediterranean Sea on the outskirts of town. And that's the seaport town. And you're going to get on a boat because you want to get away from specifically Israel, specifically Jerusalem, because you want to get away from the presence of the Lord. And again, we could say you could never get away from God because He's omnipresent. That's true, that's right. Jonah probably should have known that. But we should also know that he may have in mind the greater significance of, this is God's nation, okay? Um, God, God's glory dwells there, okay? Temple, it's where God is. Old Testament world too. I want to get as far away from God as I can if I'm not going to obey God. And I specifically want to get out of Israel and I want to get away from Jerusalem. And Joppa is still connected, but it's the way out of town. It's the way to, to get away. There's other reasons why Joppa is important. Just to put your Bibles together for you, this is a little bit of a deviation from, from what we're trying to do in Jonah, but to put your Bibles together a little bit for you. So in Israel, uh, Mediterranean Sea, Caesarea is just up the coast. Joppa is going to be around modern Tel Aviv. Uh, it's also called Jaffa. Same place. Okay? It becomes a significant place. Uh, it becomes a significant place, for example, when Solomon is going to have the temple built. They float the cedars of Lebanon from the Old Testament down from Lebanon to the seaport of Joppa because Joppa is right there and then you can bring the wood, if you will, the massive wood to come and build a massive temple. Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 16. Ezra chapter 3, verse 7. It's significant there, that crucial seaport kind of town. It's also in Acts chapter 10 where... Peter receives his vision. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, toward the end, it says, and it came known throughout all Joppa. This is when Peter heals Tabitha. And many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. That's because Simon a tanner lived in Joppa. 
It's where the man in chapter 10 of Acts named Cornelius, the centurion, uh, went for Simon, who was in Joppa, Acts chapter 10, verse 5, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. I mean, but I, I like Joppa maybe best because I like seafood. I had some good shrimp last night. We went to a Mexican restaurant in Lincoln. And I got the fajitas. I just went for the slam dunk. I went all three meats. 13 bucks. It's a good deal. I want the chicken. I want the beef. That was after I had three tacos. It was awesome. I like shrimp. Now, my wife hates Joppa because she hates shrimp. Actually, she loves Joppa because she's been there before and it's beautiful and it's on the Mediterranean. But I digress. This whole thing is digressing. Why would I say I like Joppa because I like shrimp? Because Acts chapter 10. This is where Peter is. Simon the Tanner's house. This is where he receives the vision. And you're no longer going to be under Levitical food law from Leviticus chapter 11. And let's... Have fajitas. <laughs> you get, all things are clean. Things are changing. Things are, things are changing from the holy nation that even has to have weird food laws. All things are clean. In Christ, different changes. That happens in Joppa. Historically, in addition, the list could be long on this one. The one that stands out in my mind is Napoleon was there. Napoleon considered it a great seaport. Napoleon went there, and on March 7th, 1799, it's called the Siege of Jaffa, slaughtered countless Muslim prisoners. In a tragic event. And I believe it's also where he left many of his own men to die from disease. This is a crucial place. All I'm trying to say is this. It's a crucial place. It has been a crucial place. It was a crucial place back then because it's where you went to get away from Israel. To get away from the presence of God. This is where all the Israelites wanted to be. You want to be in Jerusalem. That's where God is. His unique glory dwells there. It's a great place of blessing and protection. It's this unique kind of worship where the priests are, where sacrifices are, where atonement is made. You so badly want to be there. We don't really get that, but, but that's, that's the right way of thinking. And so here we're seeing something, and I'm getting ahead of myself, of the hatred in Jonah's heart. If he wants to go and he wants to get away from the presence of the Lord... He goes to Joppa, and that is a terrible idea. We're learning something about the sinfulness of, of human beings. Certainly something of the sinfulness of Jonah. Number three, third question, we're going to do five of these. What does Jonah teach us about God? What does Jonah teach us about God? We're going to see plenty of things, but we've already seen that Jonah teaches us that God is sovereign. When I say God is sovereign, He's the greatest. He does what He wants, whenever He wants, and He has the power to do whatever He wants. 
When Christians talk about the sovereignty of God, they're talking about that. They're talking about God's freedom to do whatever he wants to do. Because he can, because he's God, he has a God complex. And he not only can have the desires to do things, he does these things. We know it's true with Jonah, even in that little hint at the very beginning. You might think I'm reading into it too much. I don't, based upon where it's going. When he says, Jonah, you go. Well, who does he think he is? Jonah, would you like to go? Jonah, are you, would you be interested? Jonah, have you been through enough therapy uh, getting over your hatred for other peoples that you're ready for this? No. He says, Jonah, you go. And again, I'm maybe making a mountain out of a molehill. But every opportunity we have to see God's sovereignty, I think, is worth it. God says what he wants to say, and he says it to whom he wants to say it, and he says, Jonah, you go. Jonah's supposed to go. Jonah's supposed to go. Now, looking ahead just a little bit, because I thought we were going to do more than the first three verses. Notice God's sovereignty in verse 17. And the Lord appointed. Ah, that's a sovereignty word. That's a great word. And the Lord appointed. That's like a, that's a decretive word. That's a, that's a free word. God, God did what he wanted to do. He appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's sovereignty. Who does that? Nobody does that. Sovereign over the natural order. Totally in charge, totally in control, does the supernatural. I was reading about all the different takes on Jonah and and one writer said, you know, during the 1900s, a lot of emphasis in interpreting Jonah was trying to explain things from a, from a scientific kind of vantage point. Because Christianity was so under attack by more of a naturalistic kind of perspective and worldview. Look, when you look at it, you go, that was a waste of time. In the sense that you can't explain this naturally. You don't, or, or you don't need to explain it naturally. In fact, one reason it stands out is to show that it's not natural. It stands out to show God's sovereignty. If you can show that other people have appointed fish to do things, you're just robbing glory from God. I'm here to say I can't explain it. And that's part of the beauty of the whole thing. God is busy acting like God in his sovereignty and he's orchestrating things that can't be done by human beings because he's the sovereign of the universe. Okay. If you're a naturalist, of course you won't believe that. He's also called the God of heaven. Chapter 1, verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Let's call out to the water God. Maybe he'll help us. Let's call out to the lightning God. Maybe he'll help us. Maybe let's call out to the moon God. Maybe he'll help us. Let's call out to the earth God. Let's call out to all our different gods. And Jonah says, uh... I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of everything. Sovereign. 
My God's bigger than your God. Right? What's interesting is even some of these pagans have some sense of this. It's, It's God's sovereignty. He's the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He's in charge. He's Yahweh, the self-existent one. Now, before we move on to the next question, this God of heaven, the Lord, Yahweh, who's sovereign, don't miss this, has as part of His sovereign plan an intention and a design to bless and save Gentiles. Okay? Assyrian types. Jonah does not like the sovereignty of God. Jonah thinks heaven is for good people like him. And hell is for bad people like Assyrians. Now, it's more complicated than that, but he doesn't like the sovereignty of God because according to God's freedom, God's sovereignty, God's plan, according to God's plan in his covenantal plan, in Genesis chapter 12, way back Genesis 12, there is a plan not only for the Israelites, but God says, through you, Abram, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Nations. You've got Israel, the nation, and everybody else, the nations. Jonah doesn't like that. But it's been part of God's sovereign plan from way back when. Now, we know that passage because it's referenced in the New Testament so much, in, in Genesis 17 and other texts. And, and, and we know that, and that's why, why we're here. <laughs> that Christ is going to come, and He's going to be the ultimate seed. And He's going to be the fulfillment of this. And Jonah doesn't like that. Does Jonah know all that we know? No. But it is interesting that that's part of the sovereign plan. And so God shows mercy, and it makes sense He shows mercy to others, as He wants to. I like what Sinclair Ferguson said about this as it would relate to God. The pulse beat of God's heart is is an evangelistic rhythm. But for Jonah, it's scandalous. Mercy for Gentiles? They don't deserve it. See the problem with that? Jonah's forgotten his own history. And if Jonah represents the people of Israel, likely that he does. They've forgotten their own history. I don't want to make too far of a stretch here, but it wouldn't be hard for us to relate and realize that we step over the line sometimes and we forget our own personal history. Heaven is for good people. (sighs) 
sinners, sinners deserve to go to hell. Yeah, it's true, they do. So is Jonah. So do I. So do you. So there is this evangelistic rhythm from God's heart that comes out that we would want to see. Four, we'll do this one super fast. What do we learn about the human heart? Well, we've already figured out the human heart. I put two kind of contrasting complementary statements down on my notes. Insofar as we're like the Ninevites, we need God's mercy. Insofar as we're like the Ninevites, we need God's mercy. Insofar as we're like Jonah, we need God's mercy. Both do. In the words of the great theologian Herman Melville in Moby Dick, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. You get the idea. Finally, number five, what can we learn about Jesus? And then I put, if anything, well, I would suggest that we should learn something about Jesus in Jonah. We're going to have more data to work with later. We should learn something about Jesus in Jonah, especially in light of this. Listen to, listen to this. Matthew twelve forty one. if you just listen so I can go fast. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, how about these last words from Jesus? Something greater than Jonah is here. That at least gets me ready. Oh, what's greater than Jonah? It's at least getting me ready in anticipation. We will also do well not to make Jonah out to be a mere morality tale. In light of this, in John chapter 5, verse 39, I'll quote Jesus. You search the scriptures? Good idea? Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I'm not going to suggest we should find... Jesus behind every tooth of the fish or something allegorical or weird like that. But from John chapter 5, I at least want to read Jonah and, don't turn it, and not turn it into a morality tale. There's something greater. There's something grander. There's something more significant. If God has had a plan for redemption since before the foundation of the world, somehow Jonah fits in the unfolding and unpacking of this. And so we would expect to see it fit somehow as it would be anticipating, as it would be relating. And we'll talk more about that in the days ahead. We're going to pray now. Okay, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for anticipation. We anticipate learning more. We're thankful for this little book of the Old Testament that poses so many different kinds of questions. We've already learned enough today, though, to know that 
self-righteous heart um, is a killer among the professing people of God. So help us to not forget our own personal histories, that we were all children of wrath, the Bible says, as the rest. And Lord, as we think about that and as we remember that, may we have a growing burden and willingness to tell other people about the grace that is found in Jesus and the gospel. That we would be all the more willing and eager to warn others of the wrath that is to come apart from trusting in the perfect work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. May today's study even motivate us all the more to be people who have good news to share with others and not just ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.